Well, good morning and grace and peace to all of you. You know, it's, I stand here and wonder. Um, I do send greetings from the session of Pure Orchard Presbyterian Church in Ridgeland, Mississippi. But I stand here and wonder in awe of God's providence. You see, the last place he mentioned that I lived in Washington, D.C. So the last place that I actually was employed in this area was a mile from here in Fairlane's uh, Laurel, the bowling center. I was the assistant manager. And so, you know, I bowled throughout college. Bowling was my, I was actually, bowling was my God. And so it's just incredible that God would bring me back to a place where bowling is no longer my God, but now I'm here to proclaim the true and risen God. So it's just awesome, you know. So um, this morning we're going to, as you see in your bulletin, we're going to be looking at the second chapter of the book of Luke, um, verses 41 through 51. You'll find that your bulletin tells you what page that is in. Uh, it's page 858. I do want everyone to grab a pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a, pew, uh, a Bible and turn to 858. Because I want every one of us to follow along with me as I preach God's word. Now, this is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention as it is read. Well, I do believe your custom or tradition is to have everyone stand for the reading of God's word. So let's stand. The word of God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing them to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is the day that you have set apart for us to come under the hearing of your word in worship. This is the means of grace that you have given us by which we may be molded and shaped into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it is to that end that we ask that you would now open our ears and our eyes, that you would give us the illumination of your word so that we might hear that which you would have us to hear, know, and understand all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you're like me, and I know that some of you definitely are, then there are certain things in the Bible that cause, at least initially, a, a great disconnect between what you read in the Bible and how you personally understand things to be in your life and thing is no matter how much you come to the knowledge of what's true 
that disconnect still manages to stick with you. Well, this is one of those passages that does that to me. And so I'm always grateful for the opportunity to preach this text because I know it provides me with another opportunity to revisit a question that has already been answered but keeps percolating as a consequence of my upbringing and to do it with my, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that will benefit all of us. Now having said that, let me go right ahead and tell you that the, the greatest disconnect that I have just happens to be related to, to what a great deal of scholars would assert to be the core and pivotal instruction of this passage. And that is Jesus' response to his parents. This so because in this passage, we hear Mary, after returning to find Jesus in the temple, asking the question, why have you treated us so? Now, I don't know about you, but to me, on first glance, that question carries with it some sort of negative implication to which Jesus answered, Do you, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, let me tell you, I wasn't always preacher material. You just heard some of that. In fact, I wasn't even close to what some people might call the most well-behaved kid you can find in the neighborhood. This was mainly due to my lack of impulse control. If my mind told me to do it, I did it. Go catch the school bus, go to school, but don't go to school, go hang out in town. I did it. Go to the library and permanently borrow, permanently borrow library books. I did it. Drink everything that was bought for me in the refrigerator and then drink everything that wasn't bought for me. I did it. These were the ways, these are the things that I did, the kind of stuff that I did when I was the same age that Jesus was here, 12. But here's the thing. The one thing that I never saw anyone in my entire family do, including me, was verbally disrespect our parents, our caregivers, our teachers, or anyone in authority. Or, or, and talk back to them? Oh, no. I had a friend. His name was Kurt. We used to call him Curty. One day we were playing in front of his house, and his mother called him, and, and he answered. His mother's Curty. He said, what? Let me tell you, if I was your color, my melanin, you would have seen that I had turned blue, you see. But thank God I have more melanin, you see, so I was covered. But I'm just telling you. I could not believe that anyone could or was allowed to answer their parent like that. And so you can imagine when I came to this text and I saw Jesus' response to his mother, I thought, how is that not a sin? Doesn't the fifth commandment say to honor your mother and father? Doesn't Ephesians 6.1 says to obey your, your parent in the Lord for this is right? And again, honor your mother and father. And to cap that off, when, when I was in the military, I couldn't talk back to anyone like that. What in the world then is going on here, I'm asking in my disconnected mind? Well, brothers and sisters, as you'll see, I needed to take off my cultural and environmental garments of worldly understanding and ask the question that we're now going to ask ourselves. What can we learn from this text? And before I propose to answer that question, here's a statement I've come to clearly agree with without any reservations whatsoever. The more you study Christ, 
the more you'll see the height of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And thus you'll come to appreciate him and be astonished by him just as they were in the temple. And so with that in mind, let me point out three things that we'll see in this text this morning. First, a good example of godly parenting. Secondly, a great example of godly thinking. And thirdly, a grand example of Christian living. Let me say that again for those of you who might be taking notes. First, a good example of godly parenting. Then a great example of godly thinking. And then a grand example of Christian living. So first, a good example of godly parenting. Now notice, I didn't say perfect, but good Soon you'll see why I'm making that distinction clear. Our text tells us that both Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. The trip to Jerusalem would have been about about 80-mile trip from Nazareth, where they from, were from, a trip that would last in maybe three to four days. By law, the Jewish women were required to uh, attend the Feast of Passover but the, the, the men were required to attend, the women weren't. And so a woman was therefore considered to be very devout if she was of the mind to attend. The text tells us that they stayed, also tells us that they stayed until the very end of the feast. But according to some scholars, that wasn't always the case for other families. So God in his wisdom placed our Lord in a home where the hearts of the people in it were truly devoted to him. The scriptures tell us that we are to raise our children in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. And that is exactly what our Lord's parents did. They tried to the best of their abilities to expose him to the means of grace that God had provided for his spiritual growth. Now in all you're doing for God and your family, don't forget, things happen. And it was no different for this devout family. Our pastors tells us that they were returning from the feast. The boy Jesus, emphasis, boy, not God, not Messiah, boy. Luke is once again telling us that Jesus, who was God, had an ordinary childhood and experience, an ordinary upbringing. You see, he had to be like us in every respect except for not sinning. He could not be born as something different than human. He had to be like us to be the perfect sacrifice for us. He was the second Adam after the first Adam failed. Now that boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. How could such a thing happen, you ask? Which, who is going to go and leave and travel three and leave their child? How, well, it, it was customary, you see. For large groups to travel together for safekeeping and fellowship. In those groups, in these groups, it was also customary for the men to be gathered together in one area of the caravan and for the women to be gathered on the other. So it was quite conceivable, but both parents thought that Jesus was with the other parent. But now at the end of the day's journey, the nuclear family would come back together. And it was at that point that Mary had her home alone Macaulay moment. Jesus, Jesus, Joseph, Joseph, we left Jesus. So they, they head back to Jerusalem and our text says that 
After three days, they found him in the temple. Now, let me quickly say that three days should rightly be understood as one day going away from Jerusalem, the other day going back to Jerusalem, and the third day, part of the third day, looking and finding Jesus. So they find him in the temple, and our text tells us that he's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is a 12-year-old kid. But now don't make the mistake of thinking that he's astonishing these folks because he's God. No. It was, it's what it looks like and sounds like when an individual is fully untethered from sin and is therefore unhindered in the relationship with God. It's what it looks like when every intent of one's heart gravitates towards the one who loves them most and who they in turn love the most. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, we hear the Apostle James saying in James 4.8. And in James 1.5, we also hear him saying, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So what we in effect have here at the tender age of 12 years old is the perfect embodiment of Psalm 1, 2. An individual whose primary concern is God's word and in it he meditates day and night. He or she lives in and through and by God's word. It is their all in all reflecting the very thing that God had called them to. To love him with all their heart, all of us, love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God promises that a person whose heart is like that will be filled with rivers of wisdom, which is the proper application of knowledge, the type that he abundantly distills. And this, brothers and sisters, is the backdrop and core and pivotal point of this sermon, a great example of godly thinking. Now at this point, it might be helpful to remember what I said about Mary. She was a good example, but not a perfect one. Well, with her imperfection like ours, shows up right here. After three days, she finds Jesus in the temple, and we see her imperfection showing up. She's amazed and astonished by what she sees and hears. Her son is asking the type of questions and making the type of statements that probably cause her to think stuff like, Wow, when were we doing, when we were doing our devotions, he was not only listening, but his application and his ability to connect what we were saying to the rest of scripture is far above our comprehension and capability. You get to that point where you recognize your children smarter than you, whatever. She was like, Joseph, did you hear what he just said? Joseph was like, yeah, I ain't teaching that. At this point, Mary should have remembered the voice of the angel Gabriel telling her that she would be with child through the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember that she heard that the child would be great, that he would be called the, the son of the most high and that his name would be the Lord saves Jesus. That's what Jesus means. She should have remembered the words of Simeon and Anna in the temple and she should have remembered the Magi's visit. But before you get tempted to, to join the course of, yeah, that's right, she should have remembered those things. Think about this. There was a 12-year gap 
between what transpired in our text and when she was told those things. And if we're willing to be honest, many of us sometimes leave church on Sunday and will have forgotten what we heard as early as Monday. You're just going to be saying it was some short bald head dude and that's all you know. The apostles walked with Jesus for three years. He kept telling them the same things over and over and over. But they too either did not understand or just plain forgot. In Matthew 17, 17, you can see what seems like some frustration. He said, how long have I been with you and been telling you these things you not yet understand? So you see, it's evidence of the fact that our minds have been tainted by sin. Our minds are now prone to being turned inwards and operating under the sun, as the book of Ecclesiastes calls it, mode. Heaven is not our focus. Earth and all our earthly desires are. If we're willing to admit it, we'll say that. Pastor Bruce Larson does a great job of addressing this heavenly versus earthly mindset. He does so by introducing three dimensions of living, hence the title of the sermon, Three Dimensional Living two of which should be re resonate with all of us. He introduces the topic by writing, I think there are only three dimensions in which it is possible for any one of us to live our lives. There is, first of all, one-dimensional living. That is self-centered living where you are the center of things wherever you go. All kinds of people around us are living one-dimensionally. Wherever they go, in the classroom, at home, on the job, they are the sun and the rest of us are seen as a kind of solar system revolving around them. I'm sure you know at least a few people like this. They direct and organize the lives of their families and friends. They come into a party and take over. They tell the jokes and suggest the games. They relate their latest exploits and depending on the degree of charisma or either tedious or delightful, they're either tedious or delightful. It was, listen to this, it was said of Teddy Roosevelt that he had to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve plunged the entire world into sin because of this type, one-dimensional thinking. For you see, behaviors spring forth from our thoughts and theirs at the point of their temptation was turned inward. Eve was self-centered. And it's sad to see in this day and age Adults living in this one-dimensional space. But if we are true to ourselves, we would have to say that as people who are fallen from grace, who are away from the grace of God sometimes, we too operate in that dimension. Now regarding two-dimensional living, Lawson wrote, next we move up to a more realistic view of life. Two-dimensional living. You are aware of the people around you. It's political living. They motivate you and you motivate them. Two-dimensional living is a trade-off. It's the unspoken covenant between parent and child, husband and wife, employee and boss. The I will if you will of life. You are doing your part and the other had better do his or her part. I laugh at your joke and you are obliged to laugh at mine. Two-dimensional living has a built-in peril, he goes on to say. Perhaps one party is perceived as not doing his or her part. Perhaps he or she doesn't even understand what that part is. A lot of us who are parents tend to live two-dimensional lives with our children. We patronize them. We expect certain behavior and withhold our approval if we don't get it. After all, 
we know what's best. Brothers and sisters, this second dimension is the grid that Jesus' mother was operating through when she said, Son, why have you treated us so? In our vernacular, she was like, All the ways we try to make life better for you. I get up early every morning to make sure breakfast is ready, just like the Proverbs 31 woman. We don't ask for much. How can you treat us like this? <laughs> Folks, when the trials of life come against us, this is exactly how and where we are prone to operate from. Every single relational spat or conflict, husband-wife, parent-child, boss-employee, comes from operating at this two-dimensional level. For you see, even the one-dimensional self-centered person must interact with other people. But there's good news. There's a better way. And here, by and through response to his mother, a 12-year-old growing in wisdom and stature is teaching us or reminding us of that fact. So you ask me, Dean, what is Jesus' question? What were you looking for? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? What does that teach us, Dean? Well, I'm so glad you ask. Here are a few things. First, Jesus knew who he was, the son of God. Secondly, he knew God relationally. He didn't just know of him. Even the demons know of him and tremble. But he knew him relationally, intimately. And third, and the only one that I'm going to briefly comment on and have already alluded to, is Jesus, even at 12 years old, is the perfect example of three-dimensional living. That is to say, all his actions and relationship as he grows in wisdom and stature will be lived out in light of his relationship with God, his Father. Listen to what Bruce Lawson takes on this is. Every relationship is three-dimensional when we are aware that God is at the hub of every relationship. We go beyond two-dimensional or political living to affirming that God is our Father is a part of every encounter and situation. The third person is God himself, and therefore we no longer need to take responsibility for the other person's behavior or performance. Instead, we trust that situation to the third person in the triangle. We say, Father, here's my boss or my friend, my child or my parent. When we are aware of God at work in the other person's life, we can stop trying to manipulate or coerce him or her. This, brothers and sisters, is the way our Father wants us to think and live, three-dimensionally. Now, I must say that I disagree with Lawson when he said that God is the third person in the relationship. God is the head in the relationship. He is the absolute first person in the relationship. And we are submitted to him. And it is as we are submitted to him and seek him through his word and his spirit, submission to his spirit, that we are guided in living three-dimensionally before God. So as we look at scripture, we see that one imperative, that is one command after another, calls us to live this way. And at just 12 years old, Jesus is again perfectly demonstrating this to us. How, you ask me? Our final point. A grand example of Christian living. Look at verse 51. It reads, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things 
inner heart. Now quickly, I would submit to you that both Jesus and his mother are giving us good examples of Christian living. Mary particularly so by humbling herself in the face of her lack of understanding. How often when we don't understand something, we buck and rail against it if scripture says it. But no, Mary submitted herself to the things even though she did not understand it. Jesus' example, however, is what is grand. Think about this. It is now clear to us that he knew who he was, the son of God, the most high God. He knew his mission better than his parents did. And he knew the instruction manual, the Bible, better than they did. If ever there was someone who had the right to rebel or to turn against something and say, no, I know the way, it would have been him. If there was ever someone who could demand his own, it would have been him. However, he didn't do that at all. Our text says he was submissive to them, submissive to those who knew less than him, to those who were clearly sometimes flawed in their thoughts and thinking. He was a theologian, not a, he was the theologian extraordinaire as he grew in stature and wisdom. Yet he attended the synagogue every time the doors were open, sitting under the teaching of many others. Now, brothers and sisters, did you hear what I just said? This is Jesus who went to the synagogue every time the door opened. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize how many bad sermons he had to have heard? <laughs> Yet he did not forsake the gathering of himself as some all does Hebrews 10 25 I believe it is tells us that some miss or say out of the gathering of others Jesus did not do that and here you is God instead he submitted himself in all respect to those who were in authority over him by nature we are not like that in fact we're quite the opposite commenting on this Philip Riken writes and I'm going to end with this we often struggle with submission as children, we do not always want to obey our parents. As wives, we do not always want to respect our husbands. As workers, we do not always want to obey our bosses. As church members, we do not always want to listen to our pastors and elders. Don't listen if they're bad, okay? As citizens, we do not always want to follow our leaders. We are tempted to do the exact opposite. Now, you ain't got to say amen to that, okay? Because I know, all right? We are prone to insist in our own way, but God tells us to serve him by submitting to the people he has placed in positions of authority. Rather than struggling with this, Jesus embraced it. When we learn to embrace it the way that Jesus did, then we too will enjoy God's favor. Now, this is not a prosperity message. I am not saying that you're going to get health and wealth, but the peace that passes all understanding that allowed Paul to sing while in prison, and their prisons were not like ours with AC. It's thinking, all right? But here he was singing psalms and hymns. Why? Because he was intimately connected to the God that had saved him, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to his father all the way to the cross. And from the time he entered the pages of scripture to the time when the disciples saw him ascend on high, he taught us how to live quorum deo, in the presence of God, before the face of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. As I mentioned, he is a second Adam, and he had to live a perfect life. 
He had to fulfill what's called active obedience. He went, walked through the process of obeying every jot and tittle of the law. That's his active obedience. Then he went to the cross quietly like a lamb. His passive obedience. He left the glories of heaven, Philippians 2 tells us. Gave it all up, the glories of heaven, and came here. Became what? A servant. So that he would start or open the door. Not start, but open the door. Only he could do it for us to know him, to grow in him, to be in him. And so he did all that. And what's going to happen in the end of that? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Why? Because he walked in the light of the Father's word, in obedience to the Father. And now that we are in him, and now that we are ambassadors of Christ, we too are to walk in the same manner. Far be it from us to be those who do not obey those that are in authority. Far be it from us for us to be speaking in categories unlike Christ. Far be it from us to be doing anything that brings disrepute upon the name of our Lord. But we are to be they who are to live three-dimensionally before the face of God in every sphere of influence to which we are sent. And if we live that way, do you understand, do you know and understand if this church, if everyone in this church lived that way, do you understand the impact that you would have in this community? Not because you're good, but because the Spirit of God working in you is great and will accomplish great things, all to the praise of his glory. If you do not know this risen Christ, you cannot know this peace that passes all understanding. But behold, he said he stands at the door knocking. And anyone, if, if you ask him, he will absolutely come in. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Let us make up in our mind, it's always an intentional thing, not to live one-dimensionally, two-dimensionally, but let us live before the face of God. So I said that by Monday you'll forget. It's easy to remember 3D living. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize easily that if it's not for your spirit and your grace, we would not be able to do any of the things that we've just heard. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to you that you've given us the indwelling presence of your spirit. You have enabled us to walk obediently before you. And so we ask that you would make us men and women like the person that we see in Psalm 1 who is blessed, not walking on the, the counsel of the ungodly, sitting in the way of sinners, uh, standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful. But our delight is in your word, and in it we meditate day and night. Live with the knowledge of your goodness and your grace and the knowledge of your word. And you then establish the works that you have prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world for us to accomplish. You establish us in those works. You guide us by the power of your spirit, and you drive us forward to where you would have us to be driven. Father, I ask that you would grab everyone who hear the sound of my voice even now and fulfill your purposes in and through them for your glory. Take this church and make it a city on a hill. Do so so that all would know and say, look at the Lord God at work. Father, we pray these things all to the praise of your glory and in Jesus' 